Welcome to Biblical Foundations, a podcast of the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm your co-host, Jimmy Rowe, along with Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Join us as we discuss issues in biblical scholarship for the church. Today, uh, we're also joined by our guest, Dr. Peter Williams, who is principal of Tyndall House in Cambridge in the UK. Dr. Williams, great to be with you today. And with you. Please tell us a bit about uh, your background, your family, and your current work. Mm-hmm. So I've been uh, in England for a long time, apart from very brief time in Scotland, and uh, I uh, grew up in a Christian family and have been researching the Bible for the last 30 years now. So I'm, I'm uh, 48, but basically have been in university context since I was 18. In 2018, Crossway published your book, Can We Trust the Gospels? Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about this project and and are the Gospels trustworthy? Mm-hmm. So in my little book, uh, Can We Trust the Gospels, which is only really 140 uh, pages of text, uh, I'm trying to put in as brief a case as possible uh, arguments for the fact that we can trust the Gospels, but also put that in a way where any um, person who's not studied the subject before can be introduced to it and can have transparent footnotes so they can check out anything I say. I try to refer to scholarship as much as it helps, but never more. So I'm not trying to introduce people to all of the scholarship on the subject, which is vast, but to the subject itself. And so I, I try and stay focused in that, and many people have found that helpful, and therefore it's being translated into various other languages. So um, that's been the basic idea behind the book. Wonderful. Um, Dr. Gosmer, you also have actually a forthcoming book on the Gospels, which is uh, geared more for general audience as well. You're also teaching a course on the Gospels here on campus. Can you tell us uh, tell about this project a little bit more and how you actually approach the subject? Certainly. First, let me say what a joy it is to uh, to be on this uh, podcast with, with my good and old friend uh, Pete here. Uh, many wonderful memories of, of sabbaticals uh, over in Cambridge and uh, our children playing together when they were little and and uh, you know, uh, sharing this uh, love for for Jesus and for uh, the Gospels and uh, and uh, being united in believing that intelligent people can believe the the historicity of the Gospels and and can defend it. And and I read his book. I'm referring to it in my book. I I love you know what he's done and and how he's made a really solid case for the trustworthiness of the Gospels. And, and I would say in a, in a nutshell, uh, uh, Pete is, is trying to get us to trust the Gospels, and I'm trying to get people to actually read them. So it's really a one-two punch. Uh, my, my, my goal is to help people to get to know Jesus better, and there's no better way to do that than to get them to, to read the primary documents about him, uh, the Gospels. And so in my book, I, I try to guide people, some sort of companion to reading the Gospels uh, through each of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, again, as, as he does, hopefully in an engaging and accessible manner, I have uh, two uh, of my children are in college right now. And so the book is written essentially for people who have a, uh, a love for Scripture and who just want to to uh, dive into the Gospels and, and and read them and discuss them with 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 others and to understand it better, 
So uh, uh, his book is perhaps a bit more focused on apologetics. Uh, my book is maybe a little bit more of a, of a study aid, if you will. So I comment on, on rele relevant biblical geography. I want people to understand when it says Jesus went into Judea from Samaria, you know, to, to, to understand the distance involved and, and, and to, to be able to visualize uh, his movement. Other helpful background of which people might not uh, be aware uh, and even help them appreciate the literary design of each gospel um, because, quite frankly, some of those gospels are rather long. And it, 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 we, it's easy to get um, bogged down and, you know, like, where am I now, uh, say, in the Gospel of Luke? Uh, and so I try to break it down for them, hopefully um, help them understand the logic why a given evangelist strung together a given uh, series of narratives. For example, in Matthew, you have the Sermon on the Mount, which is three chapters of, of teaching of Jesus. And then in Matthew 8 and 9, you have the Messiah in action where Jesus actually displays the authority that he has over God's kingdom uh, by healing people, even raising people from the dead, and so forth. So helping people understand what's beneath the Gospels. And, you know, uh, something that uh, Pete and I have known for a while, but, but not everybody, I think, who reads the Gospels, maybe for the first or even second time, realizes is that really— uh, calling a gospel like the Gospel of Matthew is uh, slightly inaccurate. I know, uh, Pete, earlier in chapel today, you pressed us on terminology. And so one of my pet peeves is to help people understand there's only one gospel, and uh, not four gospels, but it is the fourfold gospel in the sense that we have the gospel according to Matthew and the gospel according to Mark and so forth. And so it's one gospel, according to the four witnesses, and those four witnesses don't tell the story exactly in the same way, but ultimately they all tell the one gospel of Jesus Christ. That's excellent. Um, Dr. Williams, in your book, you kind of share uh, different apologetic approaches uh, to defend the historicity of the gospels. Can you share a little bit about that and how you would defend the reliability of the gospels today? Yeah, a lot depends on where someone's uh, starting from. But what I, th I think is that a lot of people who haven't got much familiarity with the subject will think that potentially the writers were very, very distant from the time and place they're writing about. So one of the first things I want people to do is see that they really were close up. So we can do that just by, for instance, looking at the geography that they knew, that not only were these writers um, able to describe the geography in general terms, but actually in a lot of specifics, they know it and they consistently know it. So that means either they come from the land or they've had very long, detailed conversations with people from the land. I don't mind which you, you choose, uh, but what that doesn't allow you is the possibility that they are simply geographically distant and not really caring about those sort of details. If they're inquiring with people, they have actually to be checking those sort of things out. Now, you can add to that other layers that they also know about the Judaism of the time. They know about the customs. They know about the local languages. They know about the sorts of names that people get called, and they get those in the right proportion, uh, the sorts of names. So all of those sorts of things suggest a real closeness or a great attention to detail. Now, you know, and, and, and to me, that's 
just a base point from which we can then spring off and look at other things. Because once we've established that they're, they're close, then we can also see how there are little details between the Gospels which dovetail. So, for instance, in Matthew's Gospel and only in Matthew, uh, Jesus prays in the garden before he dies, may the cup pass from him. Uh, and then in John and only in John, but at a time that has to be very shortly afterwards, um, uh, when Jesus is being arrested and, and Peter tries to intervene, he turns to his disciple Peter and says, shan't I drink the cup uh, that's, come, uh, that's uh, given me? So in other words, this is where you have that word cup, which if you like, it can be explained What's in Matthew and only in Matthew and what's in John and only in John can be explained most simply if we just think that Jesus had the word and the idea of cup very firmly in his mind at the time and it simply explained it. If without that, you have no explanation and so, or no simple explanation. So that's where I would say it's not just that we have that phenomenon happening once, we have that happening multiple times, countless times, where there are these dovetailing details between Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and Matthew and John and so on. The, the six relationships you have between four documents, um, they all get these sort of cross-references. So that's where I think we have um, a, a cumulative case for simplicity of explanation. The simplest explanation is that this is basically true reporting. Any other explanation is more complex. And uh, I think complex is a great word to use because I look at what you're doing uh, Pete, as a, a very sophisticated scholarly defense of the reliability of the Gospels beyond maybe the previous generation, which was conducted a bit more on the level of maybe syllogisms or on the basis of, of logic, if you will. But you're actually diving into uh, the data, the specific concrete, even little bits of evidence that, that the untrained mind might overlook and 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 you you assemble that to show that that the gospels have an incredible amount of uh, underlying credibility to them and yeah i i i agree with that but i also say um, what i'm trying to do is i'm trying to show this isn't just available for scholars it's available on the surface for any person who's prepared to take the time to study and compare things carefully so it's it's not that it's all locked away in the original greek and so on actually there's lots uh, there to be if you like, of surface gold, uh, which can be, um, which can be uh, t taken. So that's where I, I would want to encourage everyone to, to get into the Gospels and, and read your book and therefore read, read the Gospels. Yes, and you know what, what I say in, in my introduction is that the scholars, to some extent, have almost spoiled the joy of reading the Gospels for us because of some of the critical arguments against it. And so I think uh, what we need to do as, uh, as, as people who love Jesus, who love his word, who believe it's trustworthy, is to restore uh, the joy of that of that reading, and to remove the obstacles that that critical scholars in some ways have put in the path of people who, in some cases, never even get to reading the gospels because they're already told that they can't trust them. Today, uh, in your lecture, you talked about the doctrine of scripture mm -hmm. and how that relates to even reading the gospels themselves. Um, can you share a little bit about that? I think one. Um, obvious uh, objection people have today is we have we might have a corrupted text or how is the text transmitted uh, over generations? Can we trust the Bible that we read today? How would you respond to that? Yes, I'd want to say uh, what people have got to do is they've got to be fair across things in life. 
And what we don't do if we miss one slight bit of a film is write off the whole, whole film. If we miss one bit of a talk, write off the whole talk. And yet somehow when people say there's one bit of the Bible they don't understand or they're worried that there's one bit that might be mistranslated in their translation or one bit that might not have come through right in the manuscripts, they somehow think that this invalidates the whole. And that's not the way it works. Um, so I'd, I'd want to say that um, the way a doctrine of Scripture should be um, conceived is somewhat like a spider's web. I think you say spider web in American English, uh, where it holds on to the corner of the room by many different nodes. And so I don't think of a, a doctrine of scriptures like the Burj Al Khalifa, where it's a tall building. If you knock out the bottom, the whole thing falls. What I'd say is I, I see it as much more like the web that spider makes, that it is a, 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 attaching and, and showing its truth by many different points. And that would mean that um, if uh, one argument isn't going very well, there are still plenty of other things that are still uh, working well. So I think it's important for us to uh, spread the weight, uh, the evidential weight of um, the way we look at these things. So there are so many different ways into a doctrine of scripture. You can r rationally get to a doctrine of scripture by um, trusting someone uh, who tells you scripture is reliable. It's perfectly rational in life for us to trust people who seem trustworthy. Um, you can get into a doctrine of scripture by the person of Jesus, the message of Jesus, the way prophecy works, historical and archaeological reliability, the coherence of the message, the way it's true to human character. All of these things, and of course, they they add together a lot. They, 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 they compound. And so uh, I, I think you can come at these things but, but also you, you recognize that um, the more you are into a doctrine of scripture, the more coherent it is. Um, so so um, a, a sense of the complete truthfulness of God enables you to see more in scripture. Now, some people are worry and they say, well, look, if some scribes miscopied something in manuscripts, does this invalidate things? And I'd want to say, look, down the ages, whenever people copied by hand, people made mistakes. This um, this has always been the case. But the sense that people make mistakes when they copy by hand has never been used uh, uh, until very recently as an argument against the, uh, the basic notion that God speaks words and these are recorded in books. So before printing, every scribe, whoever copied a manuscript, knew that scribes made mistakes. And yet they copied the manuscript because they believed it was God's word. So why is it that now we can trade off scribal mistakes against the notion of God's word, and yet the very scribes who wrote these things would never have made that trade? And we've done that simply because our notions have changed, where we, if you like, have moved the goalposts <laughs> so that we now think that um, a scribal mistake gives a reason to discount everything else that a scribe says. So I'd, I want to say that. I'd also want to say that our translations are getting uh, better. Our editions of the Greek and Hebrew are getting better. They're better than people have ever had before. And so if people are now at this point in the 21st century going to disbelieve when we have better editions than ever, what we find is that uh, belief and evidence have got an inverse relationship. So it's almost as if the more evidence our culture has had, uh, the more evidence than ever before, even so our belief is dropping, which is just really uh, worth pointing out because it, it, it just shows how irrational our unbelief is a lot of the time. Uh, if you can say that the more evidence you have, the less belief you have. I mean, this is 
because I think we like to pride ourselves on the thought that we we actually as a culture are really quite evidence dependent. And I, I think uh, that's very questionable. That's a great way of putting it, that people have never had less of an excuse not to believe than they do today. Uh, just to kind of wrap up our time here, and you make uh, a few comments about um, contradictions, mm -hmm. or you have a chapter on contradictions. Obviously, that's a um, um, very common objection that people mm -hmm. have, even as they're encountering reading the mm -hmm. uh, Gospels, as they notice differences between Gospel writers. How would you mm -hmm. handle that notion in light of... Um, so I, I have a very, very brief chapter on contradictions. And basically my argument in that is that in John's gospel, particularly in the teaching of Jesus in John's gospel, there are deliberate contradictions. So let's, uh, and, and, and that they are there in order to help you think more deeply. Now, what if Jesus was a teacher who taught through paradoxes? Allow ourselves to run with that for a, a little while. Because, I mean, it seems a reasonable thing that a teacher might teach through paradoxes. Well, if I'm going to use those sorts of things as an argument against truthfulness, um, then really I'm starting with a very closed-minded view of what Jesus is allowed to be. Then I'd want to say, look, we have four Gospels, and um, that gives you, you know, essentially six relationships between those Gospels. It would be absolutely stunning if you had four texts which were somewhat independently written of anything, which didn't have all sorts of tensions between them. So the fact that we have these four accounts of Jesus' life and we have potentially um, the very person himself, Jesus, teaching in paradoxes uh, means that, of course, there's going to be lots of tensions. But why would I want to use that? to trade off against the truthfulness of things. So often in life, uh, like um, Cambridge University where I teach, you know, people uh, do things like they learn quantum mechanics. Now, I don't have a clue about quantum mechanics. And it seems that the first and second year students struggle to understand quantum mechanics anyway, but they believe in it. And it's the belief in it which enables them to struggle through to the later years when they might gain some understanding of it. And so it's, a, it's an old principle of I believe so that I may understand credo or tentelegam as it is in Latin. And it seems to me often you need to have the belief that something makes sense in order to do the work in order to try to understand. And so if too early you, 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 you decide that, oh, if text A and B don't fit together in a simple way, I can walk away, you will often walk away before you've even dug you know, and this is a terrible thing to do. So my, my challenge to anyone who finds problems in the Gospels or things that can't fit together is not to give up and not to think that they, they are rational in using that as a reason to distrust the truthfulness of the Gospels. Um, I would also say that I don't know of any of those sorts of contradictions uh, or alleged contradictions in the Bible which are defeaters of the idea of truthfulness. They are so... Um, radically different that it couldn't work. So for instance, you know, you don't have in one gospel that Jesus was born in Egypt and another gospel that Jesus was born in Jerusalem or, or you know, Judea or something, it's just things that could not possibly work together. Um, so all of those sorts of things, um, I'd, I'd want to say st stack up to, um, I think you can make a, a powerful case for the truthfulness of the gospels and the um, 
alleged contradictions aren't defeaters. Yeah, and a very simple principle, but I think it's worth restating, is that not every apparent contradiction is a real contradiction. Like, Pete, you were talking about paradoxes, for example, or uh, just if I may close with, with, with one example from, from the Gospel of John and, and, and 1 John. In, uh, in John 3.16, uh, John says, beloved verse, God so loved the world. But then in 1 John uh, chapter 2, I think verse 14, 15, uh, John says, do not love the world. And so uh, on the face of it, you have a contradiction here. God is said to love the world, but we're told not to love the world. Now, first of all, it, it would take a certain amount of arrogance for a modern interpreter to claim to have stumbled over a contradiction that escaped John, the writer himself. Uh, there, so already you're predisposed to look for a resolution maybe at a deeper level. And I think in this case, it's found on different senses of the word world. Uh, that in, in John 3.16, God so loved the world, you might say despite of the sin of the world in a redemptive sense, right? But then on the other hand, in, in 1 John 2, believers are told not to love the world, which we're told is under the control of, of, of the devil, uh, not to set our affections inappropriately on the lusts of the world, getting attached to material possessions, and so forth. So it's an example of, of word meanings, context, helping us exegetically to resolve apparent contradictions that may appear to be contradictions at at first sight, but turn out to be uh, mutually complementary truths. And so those of us who are patient with apparent contradictions will actually be richly rewarded by understanding those passages at a deeper level. And so I think that's uh, uh, the beauty of, 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 uh, of, of pausing humbly. And, and as, as, as Pete was saying, this, this principle of, of, I believe in order that I may understand. Thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. For more information, please visit the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern at cbs.mbts.edu. For further resources, please also visit biblicalfoundations.org. Please join us again next time at the Biblical Foundations podcast.